Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. We are continuing our study in the book of Mark. We began earlier in this year deciding that we were going to take our time and just walk our way through the book of Mark and find out what we can learn from that, let God's Word speak to us, and not rush through any part of it. And as we go, we're finding the pages are just dripping with wonderful things that we can make application uh, to our lives with if we just take the time and look. And so we are enjoying that. We're not hurrying. We're having a great time. But i got to be honest with you, when you come to a day like Father's Day and Mother's Day, it gets difficult to look into the text and figure out exactly how do I apply this in the midst of Father's Day, Mother's Day. And today it's Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. And, and I really was thinking early in the week, it's going to be hard to figure out. It was two weeks ago. How am I going to make application? But as, as I studied, the Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit did. So it's been great. And it, we will make application. So... If you are new to Sturgeon Bay Community Church or you haven't been in a little while, let me bring you up to speed. The book of Mark is written by John Mark. And John Mark was one of uh, uh, the followers of Jesus Christ in that early church. He didn't follow Jesus Christ as a disciple early. He wasn't there to see uh, the miracles happen. He wasn't there to see Jesus walk on water. He wasn't one of those 12 apostles. What John Mark was, uh, he was the son in the house where the Lord's Supper, the first uh, communion, the first Lord's Supper took place there in Jerusalem. His mother, uh, a wealthy patron woman, owned that house, and when the apostles were looking for that place, the Last Supper would be held. They held it in John Mark's house. So early in his adolescence, he got to see Jesus say, this is my body, which is, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. John Mark got to be there a few days later when, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, showed up in his upper room there to the apostles. He got to see um, all these early miracles take place in, in, in Acts that we read about. He was a shadow of the student of Peter, and he followed Peter in his ministry. And when Peter left to head to, to Rome, uh, John Mark would eventually make his way to uh, the city of Alexandria, where he would become the bishop there. As his uh, twilight years came, uh, Mark would be the very first of the apostles to sit down and to write, to pen his gospel. Uh, all that he had learned from Peter, all that he had experienced in Acts, and he, he shared the story of Jesus, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very first of the gospels. There's some things about Mark's gospel you'll want to know all the way through it. There is a theme that cannot be denied, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the theme of Mark. So anytime you read a story, you encounter something in there, there's an account that's shared, details that are shared, we we're tempted to ask, why is that there? Why would we need to know? And the answer to that why question is, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is what Mark wants you to see and wants you to understand. So today, as we get to Mark chapter 6, we're going to pick up in verse 7, and we're going to go through verse 13. So Mark 6, verses thir uh, 7 through 13 in chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at three things today. We're going to be looking at uh, when Jesus sends out the 12, that they were selected, they were directed, 
and they were equipped. And we're going to see how that applies in his day, what the message are, the message are, messages are that we can pull out of that and how we can make some application in our own lives there at the end of it. And I told you it was a little challenge to find the Father's Day message, but it's there. I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy that. Um, we're going to open up in prayer. Let me, let me say something just before we, we do and we read this. When Jesus was preparing to select those 12, he knew, because Jesus is the Messiah, he is God, he knew that this decision was going to have lasting, eternal impact. Jesus knew that the 12 that he would pick, including Judas, okay, Judas, footed mouth Peter, and Judas, and Simon the Zealot, oh my gosh, as he's picking these people, he understands this is a major decision. There were thousands of people following Jesus, thousands, friends. Amongst those, there were probably hundreds of people who were focused and dedicated and serious about following Jesus, but he's going to pick these 12. And when Jesus gets ready to do that, uh, Dr. Luke records that he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer with the Father. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. One of those great mysteries of the Bible that someday we'll understand. But for now, the message that's so important for us to grasp is that when Jesus was getting ready to make a major decision, he went to the Father in prayer. How often do we make decisions as people and as dads? Do we make it in the moment? Or we lean on human understanding? Or we do it and we just hope we're right? When the whole time the Father is just saying, spend some time with me in prayer, let's do this together. You want to go far, you go with a team. If you want to go fast, you go alone. You want, to, you want to go right, and you want to go for the longest run, you go with God. That's the lesson to be learned as we even get into it. So let's open a time of prayer, and um, a word of prayer, and then we'll look at uh, directed, selected, and equipped. Father God, we thank you for the freedom with which we gather this morning. God, around our world today, there are those who gather in peril and in danger. I just thank you for the fact that we come here and uh, despite the rain, despite the, the fact that it's a vacation time, we're able to gather and love you and learn from your word. Father God, I pray that you would bless our time together, that you would give us the ability to learn today, and I just pray that the um, fruit of my study will result in, in um, the fact that people can walk away from here today with something learned, something applied, and something that will keep them thinking. So these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of his very real and empowering Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Let's pick up. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Version. You can read from yours. You can follow on the screen, and we'll be great today. Jesus, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money for their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So as they went out and preached that people should repent, they drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. Two vocabulary words we're going to look at today, things you're going to want to know. Not because it'll make you uh, somebody who can show off at lunch later, uh, but because these words actually matter when we study this text, and they help this text make personal sense to each one of us as we seek application. The first one is a word you've heard before. It's called sanctified. 
Now, I hate to shatter your understanding, but sanctified is not a uniquely Christian word. When Wycliffe and the other Bible translators were looking for that English word that would apply to what the Greek and the Latin phrases were, this set aside for a specific purpose, this unique choice for something that has a reason for that choice, they used the word sanctified, perfect word. But most of the time, we just use it in the church. We say sanctified. It's set aside for a specific purpose. By the way, that's you. You have been sanctified. When God chose you and God called you out, you've been set aside for a specific purpose. Sons and daughters, the bride of Christ, kings and queens, one day we rule with Christ. You've been set aside as a vessel of grace and of mercy. You are a sanctified person. But this word sanctified, um, it, it sounds big and lofty, so we don't use it a lot outside of church. So I have an option. I have, I have a second word you can think of. That word is selected. Now, we like the word selected, uh, and we should like the word sanctified. So let's, let's take a little bit of an etymological look at this and see how, kind of what it means. You understand sanctified because you understand the word sanctity. Okay? If we talk about sanctity, it means that something is special, like the sanctity of marriage. What we're saying is marriage is a special set-aside relationship where two people enter into that intentionally, purposefully, and hopefully forever. And we're saying that within the, within the confines and the bounds of this marriage, there are things that are special here that we don't share with other people. By the way, you don't share those things with other people before you're married or unless you're married either, and it makes the marriages work a whole lot better. That was free. So the other thing that we look at sanctity, and we think the sanctity of life. And we look at life, and we see life is sacred. It's special. And we don't, we don't treat human life like we do any other life. It's special. It's created by God, and it's set aside for a specific purpose. That's why God called it very good. When he made Lassie, he said good. When he made Dumbo, good. But when he made Adam and Eve, he said very good. And that's the difference between humans and animals. We're not animals. We're special. We're sanctified for God's purpose. All life is special. And we need to treat it as such, and we need to see it as such, and value it as such. But selected comes from that word select, okay? You kind of get that. This is about big, fat Greek wedding moment, right? Uh, it, it comes from the Greek, but this, this word selected, you, you know how this works. If you go to the grocery store, right, anywhere but Sturgeon Bay, and you're looking for great produce, and, and you go, I know, you feel my pain. You go in, and you're looking for great, what you want is the select stuff, the really good stuff. You know, that broccoli that doesn't have any brown or yellow on it. You know, that celery that's not brown at the bottom and already soft. And, and so you want the select, the good stuff. That's what select is. It's the same thing with your meats. When you go to Marchant's and you want to get a really great cut of meat, you're going to want the select cut, the USDA select. You want the best. And when God selects, what he's saying is, from all the others, this one I'm setting aside for a specific purpose. He knows something about you when he calls you sanctified, select. So let's, let's see how that plays out a bit. When Jesus called out from the throngs of disciples and groupies, he calls out 12 specific, select, sanctified men. Ponder that for a second. If you had a choice from thousands and you selected just 12, what would be some things we could say about those? Well, we would, we would know that, that you've made a choice. There's an, uh, there's an agenda, right? A criteria. And out of that criteria, these are going to meet it. 
But among those 12, let's think about this for a second. We know something about those 12. One of them was Judas. God, I would have made a much better choice than Judas. Clearly, you've made a mistake. Must be your humanity or something. You got Peter, foot and mouth disease, who speaks before he thinks. Uh, the rash, impetuous Peter. Why did God choose him? You've got Nathaniel, a blue-budded, erudite curmudgeon who thinks he's better than everybody else, a Hebrew amongst the Hebrew. You pick him. You pick Simon the Zealot. I mean, has he still got his dagger? I mean, did you tell him he had to leave the dagger at home when he went out? You know, so we look at his choice of people, we just kind of go, that's probably not who I would have chosen. You know, but I'm thinking about people God chooses all the time. I'm thinking about Abraham. He picks Abraham, and he tells him to move over here, and he's got his wife Sarah, and he tells you, through you, I'm going to bless the nations, and, and your, your descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore. And, and what, what does he do? He laughs at God, yet this is who God chose. Okay, who does, who does he choose later? He chooses, what, Moses? Really? Moses, this is the guy, the guy that can't even speak in public? Way to go. And he, and he picks this guy, and he goes and he kills somebody. He's that impetuous. He's this much of, of, a, of, of an idealist. I don't know. And then he runs off and he plays shepherd for 40 years. And then he, he marries way above his station and then comes back to Egypt. This is who God chooses. And eventually the guy can't even obey orders. God says, speak to a rock. What's he do? He takes his rod and he hits the rock, though, in a temper tantrum. This is who God chose. I'm thinking Gideon. Gideon. This guy, the angel shows up and says, in, in some of the best Hebrew sarcasm anywhere in the Bible, Hail, mighty warrior. <laughs> the angel's kind of be going, I've got the wrong address. Gabriel, you totally screwed up. You need a Garmin. But, but as, he's, as, he's, as he's seeing this guy, Hail, mighty warrior. Who does God choose? Look at some of the judges. Samson? God, really? That's not who I would have chosen. How about you? <laughs> of all the billions of people on earth... You? God chooses you to call son, to call daughter? God gives you the mandate of reaching Sturgeon Bay with the gospel of Jesus Christ? God gives you the right to be called dad to children? God gives you, you know you, you're the one he chose? I'm a broken vessel, God, why me? See, the big question isn't so much getting hung up on the why, but now what? You see, when Gideon was operating under God's direction and God's order, Gideon was indeed a mighty warrior. I mean, that whole thing with the lamps under, the, under those and then smashing the, smashing the clay pots all around the hill there in Gido, and, and everybody's got a, a torch up above, and, and the, the army down below, these Amorites, they know that every, every uh, torch would represent 150 soldiers ready with a sword and a spear, and they look up, and they see all these torches all around, and they hear the, all this clanging, and they, they kill each other. God knew that. Gideon didn't know that. God didn't, he didn't know. See, being chosen implies a criteria, and that criteria is that God knows you and loves you and made you the way you are, and that's who he's calling to be his son, to be his daughter, to use the gifts and treasures and time and talent that make you who you are to serve him. And that's why he chose those 12. And hey, here's the play out. They changed the world, even Judas. These, these people all played an essential part of God's plan, and God knew that. That's why he chose them. They were diverse for their population. And we're diverse for ours. Some of you are really smart people. And then there's the rest of us. Some, some of you are really good with, with, with your hands. 
Others of you are great with your mind. Some of you guys can fix anything. Others of you in here, don't put a wrench in their hand. Put a calculator in your hand. Some of you are great speakers. Others of you are wise decision makers. We're different people. Yet God's chosen so many of you in here to be fathers, to be dads. It's not why did he choose you. It's not why do I have to be this dad. What do I do now to live up to the standard of he who called me? So that's that issue about sanctified. Let me read you a few scriptures that I think are pretty important as we look through God's word. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his 12 apostles, uh, and, and he says this, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask of my name, the Father will give you. Now, I want you to take that fruit thing and kind of put a pin in it. We're going to come back to it. Uh, fruit that will last. I've chosen you to bear fruit. So this is Jesus' choice. Another one, Jesus, uh, I mean, so God is talking to his prophet, uh, uh, Isaiah, and God and Isaiah are having this really unique, I don't recommend wrestling match back and forth where Isaiah charges God and God talks back to Isaiah and it fills him in. Isaiah throws another charge back and God answers him and they're going back and forth. It's really very neat. Um, and unless you just want to live like I say, I don't recommend do, <laughs> doing a lot of this. Um, but at one point, God says, my ways are above your ways. Okay, and my thoughts are above your thoughts. Remember who you are, boy. It's kind of like it's kind of like Job. Remember Job is questioning God. Why did you do this? Why did you do this? And God goes, Hey, hang on, hang on just a second. Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you, dude? Well, when I when I separated the oceans from the land. Oh, by the way, sport. Where were you when I gave life into people's lungs? Got it? Now listen. It's like Habakkuk challenging God. Why do you do this? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Okay, I'll listen. And God says, uh, be silent and write down what I tell you so that those who go do the doing will know what to do. You be still and listen. From time to time, Father God has to call his children into account. And he says, shh, now listen. My ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. Pay attention. And in these moments, it's important for us to remember he's God. And he knows things we can't. Imagine over here. I'm in the dark for a second. The sound people are going to gripe at me. But you're over here in the dark. This is the beginning before time. The world hasn't been pulled together yet, okay? And there's just God. And he's there. And he's omnipotent and omnipresent. And imagine now, way over here is the end of time. Okay, and now the sound people are mad at me because I'm in this dark. And so you go all the way over here, and it, at the end of time is, is eternity future. And way over here in the middle somewhere is now. It's right here. It's today. Here's the, here's the amazing, mind-blowing thing. You ready? God is in all those places at one time. Now. A thousand years in the past, I am. A million years in the future, I am. Right here, I am. In, in Iraq, in Namibia, in, in, in Canada, people live there, and in Sturgeon Bay, all at the same time, I am right now here. That's God. Would you, would you agree with me that at that omnipresent, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-being God might understand and know some things in a way that you can't? Might it be that his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts? And when God does the choosing, it's not up for us, arrogant, myopic, self-righteous, little peonical people to go, well, I don't believe that God should do the predestining and the calling. I think it should be all about my church. Really? Really? 
You want to put that hat on? Or do you think maybe you can trust that God who does the choosing and the knowing and the calling and the equipping and the loving and the calling out might be worth trusting? And the question isn't the why, but the now what? Don't worry about the whys. His ways are above your ways. His thoughts are above your thoughts. Focus on the now what do we do with the fact that God has called you and challenged you and provided you this moment and this circumstance for you to do for him and honor him in. Jesus, um, as he's speaking to some Sadducees, uh, these legalists, these really smart, politically savvy people are trying to trip Jesus up. And they're saying, who are these people that follow you? Why do they follow you? Why would they believe in anything you have to say? If you're really the Messiah, why don't you prove it? And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Ah, those of you who have eyes to see, who have ears to hear, when the Spirit calls, when God convicts, when God chooses, follow with everything in your heart with everything in your power because you're a sheep and you've heard his voice go tell others what you've learned go live out the truth of the gospel that's changed your life and dads live it out in front of your wives and your children so that they can look at it and say my dad my husband my father that is a christian man and that's the kind of person i want to be and that's how i want to raise my children someday too as the twig is bent so grows the tree as the children are taught the example that you live out, it's going to be repeated in their lives. How you doing? Are you answering the call of fatherhood, of dadhood, of husbandhood? Are you living it out in a way that your kids can look forward or look back at in the future and say, I'm going to do it the way I was taught? God's chosen you for this job. Do it in a way that brings him honor. Live it out the right way. So he's selected. He's sanctified, Right? called them out for a specific purpose, these people. By the way, he didn't, he didn't call them out to be hypocrites either. He called them out to be consistent all the time, to live their lives uh, teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ all the time, the same way in private and public, no hypocrisy, live it out for real. That's the example we need to be following. But he also directed them. Now, as we go into this section of the message, I'm going to ask you um, to put your scholar hats on for just a minute, okay? We, most of us in this room, there may be an exception or two, but most of us, I can say this about us. Um, we are post-enlightenment, uh, 21st century, um, fairly well-educated Western American people. Am I doing pretty good so far? Anybody totally outside other than the you know, educated part? Most of, us, most of us are fairly savvy. We understand what it is to be Americans and Westerners. Uh, we, we understand technology. We're pretty good at looking at history and everything. But this book is an account of a Levantine novel, okay? In other words, in the Levat, in Jesus' time, Levat's the Middle East, in Jesus' time between about uh, 27 and 45 A.D., in this time frame, these things are going to be taking place. Their culture, their language, their nuances are completely different than ours. Can we agree to that? Okay. Can we agree as we do that then that sometimes the words that are on the page might have deeper meaning to a Middle Eastern, first century, Galilean, under Roman control, speaking Greek and Aramaic um, people? Would you agree? 
Would you understand that, that because the Jewish religion is at their core for most of these people, and the desire to be um, independent of Rome is common to all of them, and that culture from the Old Testament and culture in their day and age, including their way of, of treating guests, their way of eating, their way of dressing, that those things are different. Would you agree that we have to be a little bit better students if we're going to read a passage and completely make it understand and applicable for today? Can we agree on that? Okay, now that I know you're all really excited about what's coming, um, I want you to, to hear these words. From, from Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13 again. And I want you to just listen carefully to the words that are saying and start asking, I wonder what's behind it. I wonder what it meant to them. I wonder what all I'm missing. And then we're going to take some time and look at it, and it's going to make even more sense. Mark chapter 6. He, Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and give them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you, have, um, until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they, the apostles, went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. Got it? Kind of putting that all into context. This is going to be very Jewish, and it's going to leap off the page for you if I do my job, even close to good. So here we go. When Jesus gives them specific instructions, um, he's directing them. He, okay, above all, let's remember that Jesus is God, and he will be highly intentional in all that he does. Can we agree? God, do you think God's arbitrary? Do you think God arbitrarily called you to be his child? Like, oh, roll a dice. Eh, random selection. No, this isn't Darwinianism. This is God. And God is calling you specifically, so he's intentional in the people that he calls. He recognized this is a deeply Jewish set of instructions, that each nuance of his instructions is critical and rewards the student who's willing to explore them. Okay, here comes your second vocabulary word, okay? The word is adumbrate. Now, how many of you knew this word already, adumbrate? Don't lie, because I'll know, because I'm a preacher. God talks to me, right? Okay. Did you raise your hand, Brower? No? Okay. Adumbrate. What it basically means, you, you know this because you've seen it. Have you ever seen those artists and there's like a big canvas and they, and they come in and they start to slap lines up there, right? And you can't tell what it is. You've seen these painters and you watch and here's what happens. You focus, you focus, you focus. You're really focused. I wonder what it is. I wonder, is, that, is, that, is that a nose? No, it's a bell. It's a bell. I swear it's a bell. No, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a jar. What is it? And you see it all come and then all of a sudden, Boom, the picture makes perfect sense, right? All the lines suddenly come together, and there's a picture there, okay? That's a, that's a visual illustration, okay, a tactile illustration of a doombration. A doombration, though, is just a sketch or an image. And in language, it's when you start to paint a picture or tell a story with elements here and here and here and here and here and here, and then all of a sudden, boom, they come together, and the message is plain as day. Hey, what's the theme of Mark? What do you suppose might be what Mark is trying to show you here? And why do you think it is that Luke and John and Matthew also account this story very specifically and particularly with all these little bits of instructions laid out? You know why? Jesus is going to adumbrate something. 
for the Jewish, Galilean, Judean people that he's sending these apostles out to. Remember, they're going out to Jews, right? Jews first, into the Gentiles, okay? Jesus didn't shut Gentiles down. He just went over there to Gergesi. But right now, he's going to be engaging Jews. He's going to take 12 Jewish men, and he's going to send them out in pairs. So when he sends them out in pairs, what he's doing is he's saying, go in twos, which is going to reflect and draw people's mind, adumbrate, one little sketch, to the law of Moses, the Torah. Whenever there is an account to be given, you send people out in pairs so that by the voice and by the testimony of two, it may be established. He's going to send them out in pairs. How many total apostles did he pick? Well, the answer is 12. He picks 12. How many tribes of Israel? You think Jewish people in Jesus' day are pretty attuned to this 12 tribes of Israel? Uh, oh, yeah. So you got 12. He's sending them out in twos. So Israel, and he paints right over here, sending them out in two. It's going to be a testimony. So he sends them out in those. We back it up here to the, to the passage. Okay? He's going he's gonna to instruct them to take nothing for the road, but what's the first thing? A staff. A staff? They're not shepherds. There's not a shepherd among them. That's King David. There are no shepherds here. Jesus is a good shepherd. But who carries a staff around? Well, the only people that carry a staff around are going to be a shepherd or a prophet or maybe a patriarch. You see, the staff they used to carry, that, that rod they would carry, it wasn't just because they, would, they need to lean on it all the time. The staff was a symbol of authority. And the person who carried that was the one in charge. And on that staff would be grafted and written and carved the names of all the people of that tribe, all the descendants and the story of their people. And that staff would be carried by that patriarch and it would be a symbol of his authority and his status that he's somebody to follow. Or you might be a shepherd who would carry a staff while you're at work. But can I, can I give you a little, a little thought here? When shepherds went home, do you think they came home and then walked around the rest of the day with their staff? You think they went to the grocery store like, hey, hey, Joe, good to see you. Hey, nice to see you there. Still got my stuff. Do you think they went home and they, they went to bed with it, you know, and laid down with their staff? You think they were at the dinner table with, honey, put your staff down while we eat. Do you think, really, this doesn't make any sense. How many of you are carpenters? Do you, do you go home and still wear your belt? You still got the, all the tools around there? Hey, honey, I got a scrub and a speed level for you. This is my new hammer, wood handle. Carpenters have wood handles, remember? And so, and it, you don't walk around the grocery store and go to church wearing your carpenter belt. What a bizarre thing. Okay, are you tracking with me so far? How many of you are in law enforcement? Do you go home with your utility belt? Wear BDUs everywhere you go? No, unless you're an egomaniacal goofball. But most, most people are going to take that off and you put work down when you come home. Right, Brian? Wait, Dina, does Brian come home and wear his utility belt around there? Okay. Look, the staff was representing authority, and it was adumbrating a picture to the people who saw it. Why are they carrying a staff, and why are they traveling in twos? They're drawing people's minds back to Moses, drawing minds back to Elijah, drawing minds back to Joshua and Caleb, the patriarchs. The message is for the Jewish people, the message of the patriarchs, the staff in the hand of the one who comes bearing the good news. So this is another little adumbrated picture. The next thing he says, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in your belts. You don't take supplies with you. You go barren of anything. John the Baptist lived out in, um, in the Judean desert, the Galilean and Judean desert. Did, did John the Baptist, was he known for having lots of money in his belt so he can go pay for food real quick? Did John have the food there with him? Did he, did he have extra supplies and a traveling bag? No. John was God's prophet, and prophets go with nothing, and the people are responsible to take care of the prophet, or the prophet dies. 
Okay, so as they go out, you're going out like prophets. Now, another little interesting thing here. Um, bread, the way it's phrased in its original language, listen, I'm not pretending to be a scholar. Don't, don't, don't think I am. Um, but in my research, what I learned was, mostly from Vance Havner, is that this bread thing, the way it's stated and the way the language is exercised, would have really drawn people's attention back to manna. In other words, I will provide for you. You will not provide for yourself. You can't provide for yourself. So they went without provisions. The bag. How many of you remember little pictures of hobos? Remember those? Yeah, the hobos. I know everybody who's a millennial and younger is like, what are you talking about? But th these hobos, they would have a stick and there would be like that scarf on the end, you know. They'd put their stuff in it. And they'd walk around with that and they'd get on a train and sing midnight blues songs or something. Well, what, they, what they would do in the ancient world, uh, just bear with me, they would take um, this bag. And they would have their, their basic supplies. And when they stopped, they would lay the bag out. And as other travelers went by who may be better off or may have more resources or may have a place to stay that night, they would share the resources by throwing it in the bag of that traveler. There's a word for it, and we would just translate it traveling bag. And so Jesus tells them, don't take your traveling bag with you. So imagine a suitcase, right? You go along and you stop and there's no hotel. So you just open your suitcase and it's empty and you lean up against the wall and you're like, hey, how you doing? We're traveling. Oh, okay, here, I hear. And people help you out by throwing some things in there. You kind of get in that picture. Don't take one of those. Don't take one of those. You're not, even, you're not taking money, and people aren't giving you money. You're not taking supplies, and people aren't going to provide you the supplies. You're going to go with nothing. That's how you're going out. You have what you need, and if you depend on your worldly possessions, if you depend on your worldly security, you won't be depending on me. Okay, so Jesus is enumerating a picture of prophets again. Now you're starting to see a picture begin to develop. Even as Western Americans, you're starting to see it. The Jewish people are going to be drawing all these pictures. He tells them to wear sandals. Why? What's with the sandals? Let me ask you a question. Do you really think that first century Roman, Hellenist, Jewish, and Greek people in the world that they lived in, do you think the only shoes they had were sandals? Think about it. Because I bet in a lot of your minds were like, yeah, everybody just wore sandals. It's in all the movies. Didn't you see Troy? You know, and that's how, that's how we imagine everybody just got there and they wore sandals. Are you kidding me? Do you think sandal is the first kind of footwear that human beings developed? Please. They looked around and they said, it's cold. There's snow on the ground. I'll make a sandal with an open toe. Do you think they said, there's lots of rocks and things I could kick and stuff falls on your feet. I'd like to make an open shoe design that rocks can get in. No. Now, sandals were easy. They were, you know, most poor people wore sandals. That's all they could afford. But they had other types of shoes. Why would you wear sandals? Because this. Sandals, when you wore them, uh, were comfortable. They breathed. But your feet would get really filthy. And whenever you got to your, the place you were going to be staying, your responsibility was to take off the sandals, and the host would provide a servant or the host himself would clean your feet as a way of welcoming you. And saying, I'm submitting myself to you as my guest, as a person I respect, especially to a prophet. And they would wash their feet, and they would wash their sandals, and they would be welcome in your home now. So there's a picture being painted that continues to happen here. But he says, don't take an extra shirt. So this is another piece of the enumeration. Uh, or enumeration. I'm going to take exception with the translation here, all right? Uh, now, I'm not... A translation genius, but something is glaringly wrong in the Christian Standard Bible. Those of you who wrote it, who are listening on video, 
you need to get this right. It's not a shirt, okay? He didn't say don't take two shirts. The word is don't take two tunics, all right? Now, a tunic is not a shirt, agreed? Come on, you've been to a toga party, right? There's two different things there, or you've seen one, not the bad ones. When they traveled, you would had one tunic that you would wear is the one that keeps the weather out. You know, you pull over, it keeps you warm at night. The second tunic, though, is kind of like taking a little tarp. It's kind of like your pup tent. And so if you get somewhere and there's no, they didn't have hotels and Motel 6, they didn't leave the light on for you. When you go out there and you need to stay somewhere, you would lay down on the ground with your one tunic and you'd use the other one to make like a little, little tent over you or you'd cover yourself up and wrap up in it. So Jesus said, don't even take the second tunic in case the weather gets bad or you need to sleep outside. You see why shirt doesn't work? It's a miss, big time. Strange, isn't it? And so he says, don't take the two tunics, take the one. Don't go prepared go equipped. Go with what I've given you, not thinking that you're going to have uh, faith placed in your worldly possessions. So these, these are the instructions so far. The next thing, he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. Now, hospitality was huge in the ancient world, and who you stayed with were the people who would become your host. And that's the crowd that you would engage with. So let's say you went to the town. Remember, nobody's leaving the light on for you. You go to this next town, and the people that welcome you in, and you come in, we're strangers, we need a place to stay. You can come stay with us. And so you get invited in, and you stay at, at, at Phil and Diane's place, okay? Really posh. I mean, you know, they got the Donald Trump toilets, and they got the gold uh, curtains everywhere, and they got a couple of Porsches in the driveway, and, and they've got two pools. Lord have mercy. I'm lying on all of this. And two beautiful pools, and, and it's amazing. And every night, the servants come in, and they just set the table, and that's why Andrew's as tall as he is, and this amazing. And you stay with the Rockwells, and now, since you've stayed there, everybody in town, is gonna, you're going to be in their circle with their friends. They'll give you some great clothes to wear, and like, oh, wow, they must be with the Rockwells. And so now you, this is your crowd that you're going to engage. And these are the people that will hear the message that you bring, that crowd. But let's say on the far other end of things, I mean, you know, you're not staying with the Rockwells this time. You know who you're staying with now, right? You're staying with the Southers. Okay, uh-oh. So you're going to be eating like Cajun food. You know, you, and they, they live in that old broken-down shack, and you're going to sleep on the floor, and, and the people you're going to be hanging around are like the lower end of society, the bums, uh, the people that flip cars and work in metal shops. You know, that's the you, you're different crowd altogether. How many of you are catching what I'm throwing out there? If they stay in a house of common people, these messengers that Jesus sends out are going to be sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with commoners. And he says, if they welcome you, you stay there as long as you're in that town. But in a Middle Eastern culture where patronage is everything, okay, everything, if you come into town and the wealthy, the elite, the fine reject you, <clears throat> the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving faith of Jesus and that message will not be going to the wealthy because they chose to reject it. It's going to be going to the simple who in their simplicity and in their pure hearts welcomed those apostles in and heard the message and introduced them to their friends and their friends and their friends and they stayed here. And what would happen is a lot of times if, if the wealthy found out that an important person showed up in town, what they would do is they would go over and say, um, 
hey, come stay with us. Come over here to our place. You don't want to stay there. Come over to our place. And so the, they would go, oh, much better accommodations at the Rockwell. So they pack up and they go over there and they stay at this place. And Jesus is saying, you don't do that. Who welcomes you, that's who you stay with. And you share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those people. Much like the prophets, where they went, they were welcome, and they heard. The people who reject the prophet don't hear the message of the prophet. And this is what Jesus is, is enumerating in the picture that he's painting for them. But there's more. There's this issue of the dust on your feet. If you're wearing sandals, oh, I'm wearing boots. Let's so imagine if you're wearing sandals and you're walking down the road and you get dusty, dirty feet having walked through a town, a town who rejects you, rejects your message and rejects who you are, makes no place of hospitality for you and otherwise treats you like the previous prophets. If they do that, when you get outside of it, you do this thing that's knocking the dust off your feet. Well, here's what it meant. Jews hated Gentiles. Agreed? They hated them. They didn't want anything to do with them. And if they walked through a Gentile uh, uh, neighborhood, when they got to the other end, they would stop, take off their shoes, and knock even the Gentile dirt off their feet. And then they would keep going. That's racism right there. <laughs> That's bad. And so this is what the Jews would do. But they only did it to Gentiles. And what Jesus says is, if this town rejects you, when you get to the outside of the town, stop, take off your sandals, knock the dust off your feet, put them back on and keep going. It's a way of saying, you are dead to me. I will not think of you again. You will not enter my mind. You are nothing to me. Now, that, that right there, that's some serious enumeration. That's saying, that's it's like Jonah-like contempt. That's Jesus saying, what I want you to do is make it clear to people they have rejected you, they have rejected me. And there's a price to pay for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is asking his disciples to paint a picture. It's the picture that God has fulfilled His Word. The Messiah has come. Jesus is the Messiah. And the apostles come bearing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when these, when these first century Jewish, Galilean, Judean people see all these little elements in this enumerated picture that these apostles are painting, when they're watching them show up in their town, one of two of twelve, carrying a staff, bringing no supplies, and they're speaking a message, and they're staying in this home, and we can't get them to leave that home. They're faithful right where they are, and if I want to hear it, i got to go there and submit and humble myself to that. Wow. And, and the towns that rejected them, we heard they treated them like Gentiles. What, what? Why would you treat other Jews the way we treat the Gentiles? What is that about? You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't an ethnic gospel. It's not a racial gospel for there's neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor man, nor woman. All are one. All are available to the gospel. The gospel is available to all through Jesus Christ. You see, all this picture is being painted for those people. But this equipping, okay, this, this, this selecting, uh, this, this directing, and later this equipping, this is all part of a, of a message that the apostles wanted to make sure people heard that Jesus had orchestrated. Let me shift gears for a second. Anytime you read in Scripture, you're reading through there, and you see a literary device of any sort. If you see a literary device, any good student, that's you, say, I'm a good student. Okay, You're going to stop, and you're going to go, whoop, whoop, whoop. What's the literary device pointing to? Why would, why would he do that? Why would Jesus do this? Why would 
Mark write this down? Why would Luke, John, why would they write this down and make sure? The bookend that we see in this passage right here is this whole thing about demons. What? Demons? That's weird. What is this like the uh, green pea soup spitting kind of a, you know, crazy Hollywood movie of the 80s horror film picture that we get in our mind of demon, demon, demon. In, In this picture, that's what we start thinking. Can I ask you to put that out of your mind for just a second? The spiritual realm is very real. But it, most of the time, it's a whole lot more sophisticated and subtle than green pea soup and exorcism movies and priests with crazy outfits. What's going on here, Jesus sends them out with authority over unclean spirits. And the other bookend, they drive out many demons, anoint many sick people with oil and heal them. So there's, it begins and it ends with this whole casting out unclean spirits and people being healed. You might want to ask why. Why does this passage stand alone with these two events? Let me, let, me, let me help you make great sense out of that because it's actually really fantastic. Spirits have characteristics, right? And okay, let's say, let, let me make it like I, had a, I did it better first hour. Um, <clears throat> if you have um, a wounded spirit, okay, are you a great date? Come on, don't act all sanctimonious. If, if somebody has an, an arrogant spirit, do you want to work for them or vote for them? If somebody, if somebody has, a, if somebody has a, a negative spirit, you want to hang out with them all the time? No. Okay, so when I say spirit, you understand what I'm saying. Okay, so don't, don't freak out. Don't, don't think, oh, demon monsters and everything. Okay, here's what you think. While demons in the spiritual realm is real, the spirit is what I want you to focus on because that's what, that's what Mark is trying to say. He's trying to get across to you. The spirit. Okay, so spirit defining the way we behave. How many of you have you've ever read in the Bible this passage in Galatians chapter 5, verses, uh, let's say, 19 to 25 or so, and we read about the fruit? Okay. The fruit of the Spirit. And, and what is the fruit of the Spirit? <clears throat> well, excuse me. <clears throat> the fruit of the Spirit are these things that characterize a person who is possessed by and motivated by and driven by the Spirit of the living God. What are some of those characteristics? Show off. What are they? Oh, blah. Okay. The fruit of the Spirit. By the way, Jamie, you did a great job. Good job to the Assemblies of God, teaching, teaching our folks better. Yeah. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. People who are filled with the Spirit of God behave like that. That's the Spirit that they have. How many of you, dads, how many of you dads right now, are dads who are driven by the Spirit when you engage with your children, with your spouse. How many of how many of we would be able to say that if people speak about me behind my back, they say, "Man, he's patient, he's good, he's gentle, he's kind, he's always." Full. Should I stop? You're all squirming now. He's always full of joy, always telling the truth, always got a good report. You know, always intentional, always loving God and honoring God with his decisions. You see, that's what a spirit 
spirit-filled and directed person looks like. What's a spirit-filled home look like? If these apostles come and they find a spirit-filled home, what could we say about that house? Gracious, come on in. Let us take care of you. Let us feed you well. Let us love on you. Let us share with you all that we have. We're going to be patient with our cultural differences and our idiosyncrasies because we're people and nobody's perfect. We're going to suffer long. We're going to be good. We're going to be kind. That's the home that the Holy Spirit dwells in. That's the home where the gospel's had its impact. And a home like that, people are going to see Jesus and his message is going to be clear. But what about that other home? What about that unclean spirit-filled home? Hmm. What's it full of? Now, is, it, is it full of like, you know, uh, uh, lights flickering on and off and the green pea soup and doors slamming and a rabid dog and a doll that talks or something? Is this, is this, is this what the unclean spirit home feels, looks like? Now, th- don't lie because most of you are like, yeah, that sounds about right, haunted. Yeah, kind of poltergeist thing. You know, TV's always, you, got, you know, there's got the interference on it. Paul loves to make lists. Okay, the Apostle Paul. It was his nature. He's a Pharisee. He can't help it. He makes lists for everything. They're not exhaustive lists, but they're illustrative lists. Okay? It's an illustration of what a home filled with or a person filled with a spirit that's unclean would behave like. Are you ready to hear it? I need your, I need your agreement here. All right, here we go. Okay, Americans. It goes like this. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissension, that means grudges, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing. I warned you about these before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you see, (laughs) the the unclean spirit home, it's full of the things that look like Satan's way, Satan's goodies. It defines that house, right? That house where those things are, they will not be a place that the spirit of God is at home. That's terrifying to me. Because sometimes I get angry and I burst off like a typical guy and lose my cool. Anybody else? Okay, I, I didn't mean you didn't raise your hand, Phil. Sorry. Okay, it's just you and me, dude. We're the honest ones. It's my man right there. Honesty. See, truth. Real Christians. Is that humility? So I think in this picture, can we, you know what that looks like? It looks like America. Doesn't it? Doesn't it look like anything you watch on television? I mean, I'm seeing, I'm seeing sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife. It sounds like politics. It sounds like us. So if those things are in the house and the Holy Spirit comes in and He has a transforming effect, what happens to those things? They have to leave. If the message of Jesus, you ready? Here come the bookends. Here's the enumeration. Here's what Mark is trying to say. When the gospel comes into a place, it changes that place. And the things that filled it before don't belong there anymore. they got to leave. The spirit that brings those things and owns them and loves them, it's got to go. It doesn't belong here anymore. This home is transformed. 
The gospel has made it different. It's made the people that live there different, the way they behave different, and the message that other people hear is different. Because the picture of Jesus Christ has been enumerated and painted for them. And when the gospel comes into your life and changes you, it's enumerated for the people around you, your boss, your neighbor, your friend. Hey, your spouse and your children are going to see a change in you that's the Spirit of God that's come to dwell. And what they're going to say is, why? And you can say, because of Jesus who called me, who changed me. And he's calling you too. Let me tell you about it. And when you've earned the right to be heard, people are going to want to hear your story. And when people saw what the apostles were doing, they wanted to hear their story. Let me give you one other little neat tidbit that comes out of this. And uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. Um, there's, a, there's an extra biblical book. It doesn't mean it's like there's a Bible, then an extra book. But extra means it's outside the Bible. In the ancient Jewish world, they had, uh, they had this thing called the Mishnah. And so there would be the Torah, the Talmud, and the Mishnah. And the Mishnah would be um, books that didn't make it into the Bible that weren't necessarily biblical. They were just good folk tales and stories and, and uh, part of the Midrash that would tell stories. And, and it was it's just part of the ancient writings. Just leave it at that. Um, in, in this, there's a thing called the Testament of Solomon. All right? Don't you go out of here and say, Shannon said, read the Testament of Solomon like Scripture. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for them, it was a common story. Kind of like Star Wars. Okay? I could use an illustration out of Star Wars, and you'd all know it'd be very familiar to you. I'm going to prove it. You ready, Dina? Okay, Luke, I am your... Uh, see, you all knew it. Ah, okay, there you go. Okay, so since, since you understand how this works, it goes like this. Um, in, in, in the Testament of Solomon, there were these healing stories, and it was how to get rid of a demon. And so in the one, it's this demon speaking, and this demon says, there's this one thing that always drives me out, Solomon. Solomon says, hey, demon, what is that? And, and the demon says, well, Solomon, I'll tell you, it's like this. When people get together and they take olive oil and they mix it with that black salt, you know, and they, they mix it all together and they anoint somebody and they say, cherubim, seraphim, help me. And when they rub it on them, the demon says, man, I'm out of there. I hate those cherubs and seraphs. can't stand those. Always coming from the throne room and they anoint these people with smells I don't like. I'm out of there and I leave. Now, crazy story, right? Hey, Testament of Solomon story, right? Not biblical, right? But everybody in Jesus' day knew it. Is there a Darth Vader? Dina? Okay, there's no such thing as Darth Vader, but you know the story, don't you? So if I say, Luke, I am your father, you know the story and you're filling it in. So here's what's happening. In this moment, when the apostles do their healing, okay, they're going to do their healing in a way that everybody's going to draw a parallel and understand. Okay, that it comes from an old story that, that if, you, if you take the olive oil and mix it with the black salt and you anoint somebody and say, cherubim, seraphim, uh, help me, uh, that they'll be healed. But here's what the apostles do. Oh, boy, they anoint people with oil in the name of Jesus Christ, and they're healed. <laughs> what? <laughs> what just happened? I thought you're supposed to do that crazy folktale thing with the salt and the cherubim, seraphim thing, and you just said in the name of Jesus... Who's Jesus that he has the power to heal for real? Not just a story, not a character, but for real. You see, Jesus has equipped them. He's equipped these apostles with what they needed for the message to get out there. They had all that they needed. They were challenged, they were sent, and they had the resources they needed to make a difference but only the absolute necessities. They, 
they didn't trust in their worldly securities, but they trusted in what Jesus had given them. You see, you can't serve two masters, Jesus was trying to teach. If you're depending on your securities, you'll focus on the securities and you won't be about the job I've called you to. 401k, retirement plan, nice car, money in the bank, great job. If that becomes the thing, dads, that we're fully focused on all the time, will we be living out the fruit of the Spirit to our children? You see, do what's right, provide, but make sure that the most important priority is what we stay focused on. The Word of God is at your fingertips. Let me close here. The Word of God is at your fingertips, Christian. You today can pick up a Bible, and in here, the full wisdom and story of God is provided to you for 20 bucks, 50 if you're fancy. And so you, you take this, and you can hold in your hand something that those 12 did not have in their hands. How equipped are we, men, to be godly husbands and fathers? when the full counsel of God's Word is at our fingertip, if you'll open it. How many of our homes, friends, can be filled with the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, goodness, understanding, the faithfulness, if we would simply spend our time in the Word and love our children and our wives in a way that sets an example that people can relate to Father God and understand something about God because of the way they've seen you live as a man, father, as a husband. You see, you're equipped for this job. Jesus sent his apostles out to do a job. And men, you have a job to do too. We have a responsibility. You see, the way you parent and the way you adumerate an example for your little boy, your little girl, in many ways, your spouse, is going to paint the picture of God for them. And later on, the way those little boys and little girls parent is going to look a lot like the way you parented. How you doing? How you doing? What's the picture you're painting for them? What's the example you're setting for them? What can they know about God by the way you've parented? What Jesus would what would be known about Jesus in the ancient world would be known through these apostles. Their sacrifice, their faithfulness, their lifestyle this points back to Jesus. But how are we parenting, guys? Are we living lifestyles that are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and also? Are we doing that for our children so that when my will leaves our home and he goes to be a dad someday, that he's going to parent according to an example that I set and a pattern that I set? Is that going to be an, a pattern that brings glory and honor to God? Guys, is your pattern going to bring, bring glory and honor to God? Are you painting a picture, sketch by sketch, uh, by a doomberated sketch for your children of what it is to be a godly dad? So they paint, you've painted the picture of Jesus for them, and they paint the picture of Jesus for the generation that comes. This is heavyweight. This is for men. It's not for boys. If we choose to be husbands and fathers and men, we have a man's responsibility to live up to. And I'm afraid that in our churches, just like the rest of our world, there's a lot of boys who can shave who are parenting children, but they're not really being the godly men God's called them to be. And that's where I think we should be in prayer this morning. As we prepare to close, I'm going to ask you this. Can we close our eyes and bow our heads? Let's take just a minute here in front of God's throne.
And I'd like, if we can, to start with ladies. Ladies, I'm going to ask you this morning to think of, of your dad, your husband. Those two don't apply in your life. I just want you to pick a great man out there who's a father that you can lift up right now. But I want to ask that the prayers of God's righteous ladies be lifted in your hearts and in your minds right now. God, please impress upon the heart my father, my husband, the importance of their role. God, show them the impact of their behavior, their words, their actions, their values the lives of those who are being raised in their household and those who depend on them. That the next generation has an example to follow that's a good one. Men, join me at this point. Father God, I just pray that we as fathers, we as men, either fathers today or fathers to be, would bear in mind that we may be the gospel that our children read. Lord, what they see in us is the example and the way that they're going to think of you, their heavenly Father. They're going to see you through the lenses of us. Lord, let us never forget the importance of that responsibility, the weight of that responsibility, and what it means for the generation ahead. God, help us to be patient, to be kind, to be truthful to demonstrate values to our sons and daughters, to our wives, to our neighbors, to our grandchildren that would honor you and speak the story of Jesus accurately and truthfully, respected. God, I pray that we could be people that are looked up to, that are trusted. God, I pray that our children can be proud of us rather than be exasperated. I pray that you would convict us, God, finally, in the areas where we are failing to do just that. I pray that you would not let our spirits rest until we've made, made this right with you, God, done business with you to say, Lord, forgive me, show me how to do this better. Reign and rule in my heart, God, so that I'm not full of the things that typify an evil spirit-possessed father and husband and man, but a Holy Spirit-possessed husband, father, and man. God, you've called us. You've sanctified us to this purpose. Allow us to be examples to our children that bring you glory and honor for that very purpose. Lord, we pray these things humbly uh, and fearfully to some extent in the name of Jesus Christ, the power of his Holy Spirit directing us. Amen. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for gathering as a congregation. Now go be the church. Go in peace.